Great, it's uh, lovely to be here. Guys, if you have a Bible, keep it open at Exodus chapter 20 or keep paying attention to what's on the screen. We're going to be thinking about the second commandment together, so the first five or six verses of what was read to us there. Um, can I just say, it's really, really encouraging to be here tonight. It's lovely to see so many of you. The band were awesome. Um, and I get to meet some of you over the summer, I know, up at Livewire, and it's encouraging to catch up with some of you again this evening. There's one other thing I want to announce, actually, before we get stuck into Exodus chapter 20. Um, some of you, I'm sure, have heard of, heard of an event called the Irish Youth Convention. Um, I'm involved a little bit in the organizing of that. It's happening on Saturday, the 16th of November. A guy called Glenn Scrivener, a brilliant, brilliant Australian preacher, is coming over to speak at that. If you want to come to that and are interested in finding out more about it, then do grab me afterwards. Uh, it would be great to see lots of you, lots of you along at that. Um, so, Exodus chapter 20, the second commandment. Um, if you watch the news at the minute, it's pretty grim, isn't it? Depressing. No one really wants to be in any of the politicians' shoes. Um, in 2017, YouGov published a, a poll, and I know if the last couple of years have taught us anything in politics is that we should be a little bit suspicious of polls, right? But they published a poll asking the British public about the importance of the Ten Commandments, okay? Um, some interesting answers in that. The, the commandments which people thought were most important were numbers six and eight. Do not murder and do not steal. Pretty important commandments to observe. The commandments which people thought were least important were commandments one and two. You shall have no other gods before me or you should not make an idol or an image of God. People thought that do not murder, do not steal are good things to obey and follow, but they kind of just thought these early commandments are pretty unimportant for life in modern Britain today. I'm sure that doesn't really surprise you very much. What they kind of reveal to us is that at least there is some sort of respect for the moral law in the country still, but actually, really, there's lots of apathy, isn't there, towards the things of God and towards God in particular. But one of the things we're meant to realize about these Ten Commandments is the, that we can't actually do what that poll sought to do, try and divorce the commandments from one another or pick and choose which bits we think are important and which bits aren't. We have to read them on their own terms, read them in the way that God has given them to us and understand them as a, as a rule of ten as they have been given to us in, in this chapter of Exodus. When it comes to preaching the Ten Commandments, I think there, there are four questions or four words that we can use of every commandment. We can kind of break every commandment down asking four questions or using these four words, okay? So the four words that I'm going to use tonight and the four questions that we're going to think about are, are how we're going to split up this second commandment. The first word is revelation. What is this commandment teaching us about God and who he is, okay? Second word is confrontation. What is this commandment teaching us about us and who we are really like, or in other words, what kind of people need to be told this, okay? So revelation, confrontation. Third one then is instruction. What is it that God is actually telling us to do and why? And then the fourth word is promise. What hope is there for us to cling to in this commandment, okay? So these are the four words that we're going to look at, think about tonight, and the four questions that are going to frame our thinking around the second commandment. Before we get into that, um, there's something really, really important that we've got to notice about the Ten Commandments, right? It's that they are given to a rescued people to help them flourish and stay free, okay? 
They are not given to a people who are enslaved, saying, you've got to do all of these things in order that one day you might be free. Right? Verse 2 of Exodus chapter 20 is really important. God says, I, the Lord, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Okay? So all of the other commandments are predicated on what? Who God is. I am the Lord your God. And what God has done. I have brought you out of the house of slavery. So maybe you're here tonight and you think Christianity is just be a good person and then at some point God will accept me, right? It's not. Even here in the middle of the Ten Commandments, that is blown out of the water for us, right? Christianity is not that. That might be something, but it's not biblical Christianity. Christianity is you have been rescued and forgiven by grace. Therefore, you should obey and live in the way that God wants you to live, right? That is here for us, even in the middle of the Ten Commandments, that gospel principle is established. So we've got to get that front and center before we, before we launch into the second commandment. So first word, revelation, first question, what is this commandment teaching us about God? How would you finish the sentence, God is blank, right? I've got one word to use to finish that sentence. Some of you might use all sorts of proper biblical words. God is love, true. God is holy. God is just. God is gracious. God is merciful. Yes, yes, yes. All of those words are true. All of those words are biblical, but none of them are what God uses to describe himself in Exodus chapter 20. Look at verse 5. God describes himself as a jealous God. God is jealous. Now listen, it's not as though this description of himself is tucked away in some obscure part of the Bible where we have to go looking for it. This is right slap bang in the middle of the Ten Commandments, one of the best known passages of the Bible. God is clearly no problem with people knowing that he is a jealous God. He wants us to understand this about himself. Now when we hear the word jealous, we tend to think of it in negative terms, don't we? None of us here tonight would be delighted to know that we are being described or thought of as jealous. None of you have that in your Tinder bio, right? I'm super jealous. We tend to think of jealous people as being envious, obsessive, controlling. When we get jealous, we tend to want things that other people have. We get jealous of other people's relationships, other people's gifts, other people's stuff, other people's exam results, other people's looks, other people's musical ability. The list goes on, right? We get jealous of other people's stuff. But the jealousy of God is different. God's jealousy isn't, I want what you've got. God's jealousy is, I want to protect my own honor and I want to protect my relationship with my bride. That's what God's jealousy is all about. You see, God is concerned with his own glory. That's one of the things that we have to understand about the God of the Bible. He is obsessed with his own glory. And he's right to be, because he is the glorious one. He is worthy of all praise, adulation, and honor. He alone deserves to be worshipped above all else. We exist for his glory, right? And so, whenever we're thinking about the jealousy of God, we've got to have that picture of who God is in our heads. He is jealous for his own glory in the first instance. But he is also jealous for his bride, the church, because he doesn't want anyone else to have us because he knows that no one else will look after us or love us or care for us in the way that 
He does. He is jealous for his bride, the church. Think of a, a husband who passionately loved his wife, but he saw that wife being chatted up and seduced by another man. The other man was buying her flowers and sending her flirtatious messages and giving her compliments. And slowly but surely, as the husband watched on, he watched his wife begin to be attracted to this other man. He saw her craving his approval, craving his attention, longing for his affection. What kind of husband would just say, she's more hassle than she's worth anyway? Not a good one, right? If he was any sort of husband at all, He would intervene. He would be angry at both his wife and that man because he would be jealous for her. And he would express that jealousy in his love for her. He would remind her, I hope, of how much he loves her and cares for her, how much he has sacrificed for her, how she belongs to him and he belongs to her, and that together they are committed to one another. That's a picture of the jealousy of God for his bride. It's not a perfect picture or illustration, but I think it helps us understand what it means when God describes himself as a jealous God. He says to his church, be my bride, worship me alone. Because actually, as you do that, as you set your heart wholeheartedly on me, you will flourish. Your life will be better if you love me above all other false gods. So that's the first thing, revelation. It's teaching us that God is a jealous God, this second commandment. Second thing then, confrontation. What does this commandment teach us about ourselves? What type of people need to be told this kind of truth? Why is there a need for this second commandment? Better question perhaps is, what is it within us that might be tempted to break this commandment? What is it that makes us want to do the opposite? of what God says. The truth that the Ten Commandments forces us to face up to is actually that all of you in here, all of us in here, are much, much, much worse than we think we are. Not very many people in the world will tell you that today, but the Bible tells you that. The Bible forces you to face up to the reality of what we were singing, that our sins are many, right? It forces us to face up to that. It's an illustration that, that helps me with this. There's a man called Yehil Denur, who was a, a Jewish prisoner in a concentration camp in the Second World War. And one of the guards that guarded him and was responsible for the death of lots of his friends and family was a man called Adolf Eichmann. Um, he was uh, caught, actually, in Argentina after the war in the late 1950s and eventually brought and put on trial in Israel. It was very famous. It was on TV. Uh, and there's a really famous scene where Yehiel Danur, who was in the concentration camp, was at the trial of Adolf Eichmann in, uh, in Israel. And he walks into the courtroom and he sees, you, he sees Adolf Eichmann sitting in the, in the stand. And after a couple of words, Yehiel Danur collapses and he can't, he can't participate in the trial. And one reporter, when interviewing to hear Danur later, um, asked him about why it was that he was, uh, why it was he collapsed and why it was he was so overcome when he he saw Adolf Eichmann, and this is what he said. Was Denur overcome by hatred or fear or hard memories? No, it was none of these. Rather, as Denur explained to Wallace, the interviewer, at all at once he realized Eichmann was not the godlike army officer who had sent so many to their deaths. This Eichmann was an ordinary man 
And this is what Yehildenur said. I was afraid about myself. I saw that I am capable to do this. I am exactly like he. I think that's a really, really profound insight into the depth of darkness that exists within the human heart. The capacity for incredible evil exists within all of us. And the Ten Commandments force us, confront us. They force us to face up to the reality of what we're really like. So why is this second commandment necessary? Well, it's because God knows that we will be prone to make gods in our own image. God knows that we will be prone to worshipping some sort of lesser God and not the true God of the Bible. So the most famous example probably in the life of these people who receive the Ten Commandments is when they, they make a golden calf 12 chapters after this and they worship that golden calf as God. It's interesting. Our temptation is not so much that we're going to be tempted tonight to make a golden calf and begin to worship it. Our temptation will be that we will distort who the God of the Bible really is and worship some sort of false representation of him. Our temptation will be that we will emphasize some characteristics of God over and against others so that actually what we end up with is a kind of God in our own image, a God that we are comfortable with, a God that never really challenges or confronts us. So for example, today it's popular for us to construct a God who won't really challenge us about our views on things like human sexuality or gender or to construct a God who is sort of obligated to forgive us and to forgive everyone no matter what, no matter whether we're really sorry or not, or to construct a God whose job it is to kind of make us feel good about ourselves and our place in the world, or to construct a God who treats sin lightly and isn't really that concerned about holiness. The problem is that such a God doesn't exist. We can't fashion a God in our own image. Nor can we pick and choose which characteristics of the God of the Bible we like and which ones we want to discard. Ultimately, if God really is God, if he really is all-knowing and all-powerful, then inevitably there will be parts of your life where he challenges you. There will be parts of, his, parts of your life where he disagrees with you, where he confronts you. If God is God then we must worship him as he has been revealed to us in the scriptures. The other thing that the second commandment confronts us with is the temptation we all live for, or temptation that we all face to live for and serve something other than the one true God. I'm sure that this was mentioned when you were looking at the first commandment, but we all face the temptation, don't we, to, to center our lives on something or someone other than the God of the Bible? All of us face this almost all of the time. Let me, let me tell you how your life will pan out if you center it on something other than God. There's a list of examples that I'm going to run through here. I'm sure that almost everyone is included in here somewhere along the line, right? If you center your life on finding a partner, you will be needy and insecure. Eventually, you will be dependent on them, perhaps even jealous and controlling. Their problems will be overwhelming to you and you will crush them with completely unrealistic expectations. If you center your life on work 
and career, you'll end up being a workaholic and a shallow person. At worst, you might lose family and friends and have a life void of significant relationships. On top of that, if your career ever goes poorly, you'll be crushed. If you center your life on stuff, money and possessions, you'll be eaten up by worry and comparison. And at worst, you might do unethical things to maintain your lifestyle and that will eventually blow up your life. If you center your life on pleasure and comfort, you will get addicted to something that will be really harmful for you. And that addiction will slowly but surely cause your life to spiral out of control. If you center your life on politics or a particular religious identity, you will find yourself constantly blaming and bemoaning the other side. You will sacrifice truth and integrity for the sake of a political preference and you will end up either bitter or cynical or both. And if you center your life on relationships and approval, which basically is kind of like what every teenager does all the time, then you will be easily hurt by criticism. You will be addicted to social media. You will fear confronting others. And ultimately, you will be a useless friend. The Bible warns us time and time again not to center our lives on something or someone other than God because it never plays out well for the people of God when they do that. And so the second commandment is confronting us, warning us about the depth of evil that exists within our own hearts and the dangers that come with serving something other than the one true God. Third thing then, and the last two are, are much shorter. Instruction, what does this commandment tell us we are to do? Well, we've, we've thought about this already. It's telling us what we shouldn't do, I suppose. We shouldn't make images of God or make God in our image, nor should we serve idols. But I also think that there's a, a positive implication then of this commandment, namely that we are to worship God alone. So it's not enough in the Christian life just to diagnose the idols of our hearts, nor is it enough even to root out the idols in our lives. We've got to plant something in their place. I have, I have a patio at home, right? And I hate it because it keeps growing weeds in between all the little bricks, right? And every so often what I do is I go around and I pick out all the weeds and I like buy expensive weed killer and spray it in and they all die and then I pick out all the dead ones. And you know what happens? They grow back, right? Whenever we're thinking about our hearts, we can diagnose the problem we can even root out some of the idols, but if we don't plant something in its place, those same sinful desires will grow back time and time again. So what we've got to do is plant love for Jesus in the place of our idolatrous desires. So the question then becomes, how do we do that? How do we worship Jesus uniquely? It's probably a sermon in itself, right? But I think the key is remembering We've got to remember who he is and what he has done. And God, in verse 2, actually does remind his people he is the Lord, our God, who has brought us out of Egypt. For New Testament Christians, we've got to remember who Jesus is and what he has done for us. He is the God-man who has come and lived the perfect life that we couldn't live and died the perfect death that we couldn't die. He has risen again in victory over sin, hell, death, and the devil. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning over all peoples. That's who Jesus is. He alone is worthy of our affection. So Jesus is the one that we are to adore. We 
been doing that this evening. We are to praise him and treasure him and be devoted to him above all else. Jesus is the one that we are to trust. We are to count on him above all else. Jesus is the one that we are to look to. Who do you call on whenever your life's falling apart in moments of despair? If we're really worshiping Jesus, he is the one that we're to look to. Jesus is the one that we are to thank. We're to recognize that everything that we have and enjoy in this life and everything that we have to look forward to in the life to come is from him. One of the best things that you can do to plant a love for Jesus in your heart is to thank him regularly and consistently for all the blessings that you enjoy. What's the instruction that this commandment is telling us? We're to worship Jesus ultimately as New Testament believers. Last thing then, what's the the promise? What does this commandment teach us about the gospel? Um, I guess in this commandment, there's both a promise and a warning. If you look at verses five and six, there's these lines about God punishing sins and showing love. There's both warning and promise. So let's think about the warning, first of all. At first glance, we kind of read it. Perhaps we think it sounds a little bit harsh. But the warning here is about God's judgment who will walk in the wicked ways of their fathers and grandfathers. Look closely at verse 5. It says that he will visit the iniquity of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. So we're meant to see here that the children share in their father's punishment because they share in their father's sins. It's not as though God is being unreasonable here. He's not saying to some generation, three or four generations down the line, oh, you're going to get punished because of the sins of your fathers. And you're going to be punished because you are walking in the same sinful ways as your fathers. So the lesson for us is that if we fail to treat God as God, if we live in a way where we're sort of ambivalent towards God, then we will be subject to the judgment of God for that. How we treat God matters. There's a man called A.W. Tozer who once said, What you believe about God is the most important thing about you. How we treat God matters. What you believe about God is the most important thing about you. Cannot be ambivalent towards him. So that's the warning, but there's also a promise that God will show mercy to thousands who love him. It's a promise of steadfast love for those who keep his commandments It's not some sort of legalistic promise where God is saying, I'll only love you if you obey me. If you know yourself at all, right? If you've any inkling into what you're really like as a person, then you'll know that it's impossible for you to perfectly keep these commandments. We've talked already about how deceptive and evil our hearts can be. And so our hope this evening is not in our own ability to keep these commandments perfectly. Our hope as New Testament believers is in Jesus who perfectly obeyed these commandments, perfectly obeyed the Father always, even to the point of death. And as we find ourselves trusting in him, reminding ourselves again about who he is and what he has done for us, then we'll be given the grace and strength to keep making progress in obeying these commandments. But our hope ultimately is not in our ability to be perfect, but in the one who has been perfect for us. That's the good news of the gospel for people like you and me tonight, for people who struggle 
and continue to struggle with the weeds of idolatry that keep creeping up in our hearts, the good news is that you have a Savior who knows all about it. He knows and sees you right down to the bottom, but he is not put off by you. He has come to this earth and lived a perfect life and died a perfect death in your place. And he is not giving up on you. If you're a Christian here tonight, he has begun a work in you that he has promised that he will carry out to completion. So be encouraged. If you're wondering already, it's September, and you're wondering already a little bit from the Lord Jesus, he is not here to scold you tonight. He is here offering you his peace. He knows all about the idols in your life, and he can forgive you for them. He longs to set you free on this path of obedience with him. Let me pray for us as we close. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for your word. And as we read these 10 commandments, we realize that um, they do expose the depth of sinfulness in our hearts and they expose the need that we have for a savior. We thank you, Lord, even as we read these ancient words, they do point us to the beauty and glory and perfection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I want to pray especially tonight for folks who are here who are struggling with their walk with you, who know deep down they're centering their lives on something or someone other than you. Lord, please will you help them to see that nothing can satisfy in the way that Jesus does. Help them to see that you aren't here to scold them, but that you are here offering your peace and your grace, and your forgiveness for broken and flawed people, because that's the only kind of people there are. Bless us now as we continue to worship you, and as we chat with one another afterwards. Um, be in our conversations. Help us to be spurring one another on to greater faithfulness in the gospel. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.